0: So as we launch into the Advent season, I want to start this morning by telling you the story about a king. This is a king who ruled for 20 painful years in the southern kingdom of Judah in the 8th century BC. So we're going quite a ways back. This was a man who goes down in the history of the annals of the kings of Judah. as one of the most unfaithful kings of all, and that's saying something because there's a number of, uh, of, of people that fit that category. This is a king by the name of Ahaz. There he is. A young man who came to power in 736 at the ripe old age of 20. Can you imagine being a king of a kingdom at the age of 20? His father Yotham had been one of the godly kings of Judah, but Ahaz, for some reason, was cut from a different cloth. And by the time his father died, the kingdom of Judah was on very shaky ground. It was being threatened by some of its most ancient enemies from the south. The Edomites were threatening, the old uh, descendants of Esau. And from the west, their most ancient enemy, the Philistines, were threatening as well. But most importantly, above all that, to the northeast was the biggest bully in the neighborhood the mighty kingdom of Assyria, which at that time was seeking to expand all over the ancient Near East. And by the time Ahaz comes to power in Judah, they had already forced two nations just to the north of Judah to bow their knee to Assyria and to pay them financial tribute. One was the kingdom of Aram, which we know today as Syria, and the other was directly to the north of Judah, the fellow Jewish kingdom, right? Brothers, Jewish kingdom of Israel made up of the 10 of the 12 tribes of Jacob. Now in 736 BC, when Ahaz became king in Judah, the kings of Aram and Israel had already come together and made a pact with one another to begin to resist Assyria and to stop making financial payments to them, to stop that tribute going back to Nineveh. That was a very risky thing to do. And so when this coalition then came to the new king, Ahaz, and said, will you join us in this with alliance? Because obviously more nations would be better. There'd be more strength. If the three of them got together and said to Assyria, we're not paying you anymore, King Ahaz said, no, thank you. Now that didn't sit well with the kings of those two nations. And so Aram and Israel hatched a plan. They would come together and they would travel south and they would make war against Judah. Imagine an Israelite king making war against his brothers in Judah. But they would do that, they would remove Ahaz and they would replace him with a puppet king that they could control. And the story of that war is in the scriptures, you'll find it in Second Chronicles 28. And not surprisingly, Judah was badly defeated in that conflict, losing more than 100,000 soldiers in battle. Now they weren't able to topple Ahaz and take him out of power, but by the time they had withdrawn and the fighting was over, Judah was in a very bad place. They were badly diminished and they were more vulnerable than ever to all of these surrounding nations. So what's a king to do? If you're a young king at that time, what do you do? Well, this is where things get really interesting. This is where the historical books of the Bible merge with the prophetic books. And here we are this morning at the beginning of the Advent season. We're counting down to the celebration of the birth of Christ. And it's at this time of year that we often think of two prophecies that we know well. One from Isaiah 7 and one from Isaiah 9. And you're probably familiar with both. Here's what they say. Isaiah 7, 14 says, Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name... Emmanuel. Emmanuel. I knew knew you knew it. And Isaiah 9, 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. And so every Christmas, we quote those amazing verses, don't we? We even put them on our Christmas cards because we love them so much. But how many Christians actually know the context, the wider context of what those verses are? Where do those verses fit into the historical record of Scripture? Well, right where we are this morning in the 8th century BC with King Ahaz. That's where they fit in. So at the same time, this young king was looking out at the ancient world, this geopolitical world, and worrying about his future. The Lord sent his prophet Isaiah to the king to deliver some good news to him and to give him peace, something should have given, that should have given him great peace. Here's what the text says. The Lord said to Isaiah, go out now to meet Ahaz, and say to him, listen now, take care and be calm. Have no fear, do not be cowardly because of these two smoldering sticks, meaning the king of Aram and the king of Israel. Stop worrying about those guys. It goes on, they have planned evil against you, but thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. Now, that's the best news you could get as a king, right? You'd be like, awesome, I'm good. Because the Lord has my back and the Lord of hosts is my protector. That's how it should have gone. But understand now, this good news was announced not really for King Ahaz, because God knew he was a faithless king. It was announced for two reasons. Number one, for the sake of the preservation of the line of David, because that's the line that the Messiah will come out of. So God is not going to let Judah fall. And secondly, because the time had come for judgment upon the northern kingdom of Israel. They were going to go first the very nation that had attacked Judah. In fact, the very next verse, the Lord tells King Ahaz through Isaiah that very soon that northern kingdom would cease to be a visible nation at all. It's gonna be scraped. And this is the setting for our first Christmas moment. God knew that Ahaz was a faithless king, but still he offers him very graciously to ask for a sign. He says, Ahaz, if if you don't believe what I'm saying, I want you to ask for a sign, right? Ask for a sign that you will survive and that Aram and Israel will be punished. And this is how generous God's offer was through Isaiah. Isaiah said, ask for a sign. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as the heavens. Imagine, so he had, the sky was the limit. He could ask for any sign. He could say, Lord, I want the sun to stand still. Or you know what, more practically, will you bring all of my soldiers who just died back to life? He could have asked for that. But like the fool that he was, the king, apparently trying to be humble, but lacking wisdom, said to Isaiah, I will not ask. Seriously? I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. What a fool. God said ask, and he said, I will not ask. That's called what? Disobedience. Disobedience is not wise, nor is it humble. And so God was angered at the king's refusal. And Isaiah, representing Yahweh's righteous anger, barks at the king. Listen what he says. Listen, O house of David. Is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Since you didn't ask for one, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And, and that's where the Christmas card stops. <laughs> that's where we like, oh, I love that verse. And we stop. But it goes on. Before the boy knows to reject what is bad and choose what is good, the land of the two kings you dread will be forsaken. Hmm. So, in the media context, The sign wasn't so much about the birth of this child, it was about a time frame in which the lands of Aram and Israel would be taken down by force. And then what would happen? In a very short time, before the child grows out of infancy, that's when it would take place. Now what child is God referring to here? There's a number of theories that scholars have put forth, but in my mind it's very clear, because if you go to the very next chapter, in Isaiah chapter eight, The prophet speaks of fathering a son himself. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Before the boy knows how to call father or mother, the wealth of Damascus, which is Aram, and the spoils of Samaria, which is Israel, will be carried off to the king of Assyria. So there's the parallel there between this child that's going to be born and this child that Isaiah is about to father. Now it raises a question, why, why, so, why so mysterious? Why deliver the prophecy in this way to talk about this child? Why not just say, hey look, in a short period of time, these nations are gonna be taken down? And the answer is there's way more going on than first meets the eye. In the world of prophecy, we call this telescoping. God has a telescoping fulfillment in mind. First of all, there's gonna be a small and relatively unnoticeable fulfillment right then and there in the immediate context, and then in the distant future, there's gonna be a much larger and more important fulfillment. This is what's going on here. So this prophecy wasn't just for King Ahaz, it was meant to communicate a truth to the entire house of David. In fact, the verse says the Lord will give you, and in the Hebrew, that is plural, will give you, all of Judah, this particular sign. And then when we go to our New Testaments, it's Matthew who applies it to the Christmas story, doesn't he? Matthew, under the inspiration of the Spirit, takes that verse, Isaiah 7, 14, and applies it to all of the conditions that come about around the birth of Christ, and he literally writes, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. That's how we know that there is this greater and larger fulfillment coming in the future. So the birth of God's one and only Son in the first century was that ultimate Fulfillment, that telescope prophecy way back in the 8th century BC. So let's go back there now. Remember, King Ahaz has said to Isaiah, I will not ask for a sign. And Isaiah says, Well, fine, then God Himself is going to give you a sign. Here it comes, right? The sign of this child. Now, you would think at that moment, Ahaz would realize his mistake and go, Oh, I have I have disobeyed the Lord, the prophet's angry, that he would repent. And that he would would ask for a do-over? How many of you guys would ask for a do-over at that point? I would, but no. The truth is, Ahaz is an apostate king. He is a heretic, he is an unbeliever, he is an idolater, and he's a fool. And instead of trusting in God's promise to protect him, he decides in his own flawed wisdom, and let's be honest, how many times do we do this? We're like, I, I see what God's word says, but you know what? Practically, I see it this way and we go do our own thing. In his own wisdom, he tries to fix the problem himself. He ignores Isaiah and he goes out and he appeals to the biggest dog in the neighborhood to come and protect him from his neighbors to the north, Assyria. He he sends a note to the mighty king, this is one of my favorite names, Tiglath-Pileser III, (laughs) TP3. Is what we used to call him in seminary, TP3. He goes and appeals to this mighty king and he brings, he plunders the temple treasury and he, he sends it to Tiglath Pileser and he says, I want to be your friend. And he formally requests an alliance with Assyria that he believed would protect him from Aram and from Israel and from the Edomites and from the Philistines. Again, practically, did that make sense? Absolutely. But was it disobedience? Absolutely. In the short term, his plan worked. Because in the years 733 and 732 BC, historical records show us that TP3 marched his massive army out of Nineveh and headed west towards the Mediterranean Sea, and he flattened Aram. And he captured Damascus. And he took most of the population into captivity, and he turned it into an Assyrian outpost. Then he traveled further south, and he badly defeated Israel, and he pillaged its territory. And about three quarters of the Jewish population in the northern kingdom was taken out of the land and deported into other parts of the ancient Near East. Both kings in Aram and Israel were killed. And all of this happened within two years of Isaiah's prophecy. Before the boy knows to reject what is bad and choose what is good, the land of the two kings you dread will be forsaken. And that's exactly what happened. The wealth of Damascus and the spoils of Samaria will be carried off to the king of Assyria. The the prophecies could not have been more specific. And history tells us that's exactly what happened. Now, sadly, down south in Judah, the apostasy of King Ahaz only became worse he reveled in the fact that Assyria came to his aid. He was like, look at my new friend, the big bully in the neighborhood. He reveled in it, the fact that these, these former enemies had now been flattened. But instead of saying, thank you, Lord, for your divine protection, Ahaz did something that still boggles the mind. He went up to Damascus and he presented himself in front of Tiglath-Pileser, And he bowed down before him and declared that he would be his subject. And while Ahaz was in Damascus, the Bible itself tells us that he saw a beautiful altar there in Syria that was so impressive to him, he sent word back to Jerusalem to his priests and said, I wanna build a replica altar just like the one up here to a pagan god. And when I get down there, I wanna replace the bronze altar from the temple in Jerusalem and install a new pagan altar. Can you imagine? Imagine the slap in the face this was to Yahweh. And so 2 Chronicles 28 wraps up the legacy of this king with these words. In the time of his distress, this same king Ahaz became yet more unfaithful to the Lord, for he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which had defeated him. And listen to his practical words and said, because the gods of the king, kings of Aram helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. The blindness, right? He made altars for himself in every corner of Jerusalem, in every city of Judah. He made high places to burn incense to other gods, and he provoked the Lord, the God of his fathers, to anger. That is not what you want on your tombstone. That is not a good record. Now... Um, Bear with me for a second. I want, can I squeeze in just a wee bit of archeology? span <laughs> Okay, good, I appreciate that. If there is even an inkling of doubt in your mind about the story of this king. Oh, well, you know, Jeff, it's, pretty, it's a long time ago. Maybe he didn't actually exist. Let me show you something. This is a royal seal that was dug up in Jerusalem that literally bears his name, the name of his father, and the fact that he claims to be the king of Judah. That is the amazing thing. It dates back to the 8th century BC, an amazing find, an artifact that lay in the sands of Jerusalem for 2,700 years before it was found. And then scholars looked at it, and they looked, you can see on the left side. There's an actual indent from a fingerprint on it, possibly the fingerprint of King Ahaz himself if he put that seal on some royal letter. This is the oldest seal ever discovered. And then just eight years ago in 2015, there was a group sifting through debris at the very southern end of the Temple Mount, and they found another seal almost as old from his son Hezekiah that we have as well in in a museum in Israel, almost as old as this one. These are remarkable confirmations, guys, that the scriptures that we read Our true history is an amazing thing to dig these up. And then just to give you another bit of evidence, back in 1873, archeologists found, they were digging through a city called Nimrud, which is in northern Iraq, and they found the palace of Tiglath-Pileser, and they dug and found his annals, and in one one of his writings, he lists the kings of the ancient Near East who paid him tribute. And guess whose name is on that list? Ahaz of Judah. I- I'm amazing, right? I- and I-, I like to bring, the- bring these things up, again, just to build your faith, that that Bible you have in your lap is historical and true. So be encouraged today. Amen? Amen? So the Christmas prophecy of Isaiah 7 came true concerning the child in Isaiah's day and concerning the downfall of Aram in Israel. But here's the thing now. There is a third piece to that prophecy, and it's not often talked about, but it comes just three verses later. Here's what it is. Isaiah seven seventeen. Isaiah says to King Ahaz, the Lord will bring on you, on your people, and on your father's house such days as have never come since the day that Ephraim, which is Israel, separated from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. In other words, you know, as Ahaz was dancing, like, oh, my enemies are, are gonna be wiped out, God says, nuh uh, you have not escaped his discipline either. And I will use the king of Assyria to punish you as well. And then in chapter eight, the Lord speaks to Isaiah again, confirming, listen to this now, Assyria will first destroy the northern kingdom of Israel, and then he says, he says, This of Assyria, it will sweep on into Judah it will overflow and pass through, it will reach even to the neck. And that language is important, that Assyria will someday come to the neck of Judah, but it will not overcome Judah. Why? Again, because God is gonna protect Judah for the sake of maintaining the line of the Messiah. Well, guess what? 30 years later, another Assyrian king, by the name of Sennacherib, will do exactly what TP3 did. Come west with his army, and he will invade Judah under the reign of who? Hezekiah, who is Ahaz's son. And what will happen? He will lay waste to all the cities of Judah except one city. Which one? Jerusalem. He will even surround the city of Jerusalem to the very neck of Judah. But then the Lord will again rescue Zion for the sake of of his messianic line, and he will drive Sennacherib back to Nineveh without him ever capturing the prize of Jerusalem. Amazing history. So Judah was under judgment. Even though the northern kingdom falls first, Judah's under judgment, and we shouldn't ignore the fact that her people were going to suffer greatly because of poor leadership, because of idolaters in the palace in Jerusalem who misled the people and into pagan worship. That's my introduction this morning. Grab your Bibles. <laughs> Merry, Christmas. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Grab your Bibles. We're going to Isaiah chapter what? Oh, chapter nine. Thus, the reason for the Advent series title nine. I was waiting for. Uh, I was waiting for either ah uh, or boo. <laughs> because that's so cheap, right? No. I appreciated all your guesses over the last couple weeks about what it would be. And even on our Instagram over the last couple days, you guys were guessing. I appreciate that. But it's really very simple. What we want to do this Advent season is over these five weeks, we're we're going to cover just seven verses from Isaiah chapter nine. And we're going to celebrate Christmas. This morning, all we're going to do is actually look at verse one and set the stage for the coming weeks, we're we're going to dive deeply so that when we get to verse 6, which is the most famous and beloved Christmas prophecy of all, that we're going to understand the context and understand exactly what the prophet was trying to say. Now look at verse 1. Notice the first word. In Hebrew, it's the word key. But depending on your English translation, it either says but or nevertheless. Now what do we do when we see that word? We say, oh, that's a transition word. It's a contrasting word, right? It's, it's gonna share with us, but this, but nevertheless this, and that means we can't just start at a but. We can't start it, and nevertheless. It means we have to go back to chapter eight to see what the contrast is gonna be. So go back to Isaiah eight and look at verse 19. These last couple verses in chapter eight are gonna set the stage, and I want you to hear in this the bleak spiritual atmosphere, that Isaiah and Judah are living under with King Ahaz on the throne of Judah. Verse 19, when they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter. Should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living to the law and to the testimony, he says. If they do not speak according to this word, that is God's word, it is because they have no dawn. They have no light They are in darkness, spiritual blindness and darkness. Verse 21, they will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness, which is, of course, language that sounds very much like eternal judgment, does it not? That's how bleak it is. These were deep and troubling times for both Israel and for Judah, filled with idolatry and fear and darkness because they turned away from Yahweh and they turned away from his word and a gloom had come over the land. And so both nations are about to face judgment because of their unbelief. First Israel, an apostate Israel, the northern kingdom would be dealt with first. They would be cut off and left desolate because of their blindness because they'd actually, imagine, gone out and allied themselves with a pagan nation to invade their brothers in Judah. What a betrayal. So that's the situation. Now go over to chapter nine. Now we'll see the contrast that Isaiah is drawing for us. Remember those words, a gloom of anguish. Now look at verse one. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. Look at the tenses there. There will be no more gloom in the future for her who was in the past in anguish. In earlier times, he, that is the Lord, treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Okay, You see a number of key geographical terms there. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, way of the sea, Galilee of the the Gentiles. What does that mean for us? Boom. Or three, a map or three. Okay, so let's look at, there it is, Let's let's try to find what what he's pointing to here. Here is a your typical map of of Israel, but these this is like broken down by the 12 tribes of Israel, which of course are named for the 12 sons of Jacob. Whenever we look at a map of Israel, we look for the two bodies of water, the Sea of Galilee in the north and the Dead Sea in the south, and then we find that dark darker blue dot, right, which is Jerusalem, which is located in the south in the tribal land of Benjamin, but right on the border with Judah. Who was Zebulun? Well, Zebulun was the tenth son of Jacob, and the sixth son that he had with Leah, and his territory is outlined there in green. That is the land of Zebulun. As you can see, he's granted a portion of what we call the lower Galilee, including, by the way, Nazareth, where Jesus was raised. Naphtali was the sixth son of Jacob and the second son of Jacob and Rachel's maidservant, Bilha, and his land is outlined there in pink. As you can see, Naphtali was given land that was considerably larger than Zebulun. It includes area, uh, territory in both the lower Galilee and the upper Galilee, and also borders the Sea of Galilee on the east. This was, the land of Naphtali, the most productive and fertile land in all of Canaan. It was, it's fed by all kinds of springs there from Mount Hermon to the north, and so this was excellent land for farming. But here's the thing. Both of these territories had problems from the very start. In the book of Judges, we're told that both Zebulun and Naphtali failed to drive out the Canaanites in the days of Joshua. They got lazy. They quit the job. They conquered, but they said, ah, eh, we can leave some of them there. Oh, we maybe, we'll make them our slaves maybe, but you know what? We're not going to drive them out. What does that mean? It meant that there was a slow drain of Israelite purity in those particular lands. In those lands, and all the lands where the Canaanites were not driven out but allowed to stay, you saw this mixing of marriages and, more importantly, a mixing of spiritual faith and practice. So strange worship remained constant up there in the far north. And because this part of the land was furthest from Jerusalem, it was constantly being impacted by the Gentile neighbors to the north and to the east. So ongoing pagan influence. In fact, in later centuries, rabbis would often warn Jews not to go up to this part of the country, especially the area around Dan, because of the history of pagan worship up there. They believed evil spirits would would harass any Jew who went to that territory. And some of you guys here, I know you've been to Israel. You've been to the the city of Benias, right? What's at Benias? This ominous cave that to this day is still called the gates of hell because of its history of pan worship and human sacrifice. All of that is up in Dan in what we call Caesarea Philippi. And because Galilee was in the far north of the promised land, it also became the natural gateway through which Gentiles came into Israel sometimes to farm, sometimes to trade, sometimes to invade. So much so that when you look at, if you were to look at a demographic profile of Galilee at the time of Christ, you would see it's a very ethnically diverse area. It's not as Jewish as you might think. It's mixed with Gentiles. That's why it's referred to, even in the 8th century B.C., as Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, the way the sea was known in later centuries as the Via Maris, In the days of Jesus, it was the most important international route that went from Damascus in the north. By the way, that's when we talk about Paul meeting God on the road to Damascus. That's the road we're talking about. From Damascus in the north all the way down to Thebes in Egypt. And that road would naturally, if it was going from Syria to Egypt, would have to run through the promised land. See the red line there? And you see it cuts right through the tribal lands, of Zebulun and Naphtali. And it's called the way of the sea because it goes through the Jezreel Valley and then down to Caesarea and Joppa and Ashdod and Ashkelon and have you heard this term, Gaza? All the way down the way of the sea. Make sense? So that's the geographic. This is what this is what Isaiah is talking about in the 8th century BC. Now, why does Isaiah say that God had treated these lands with contempt in the past? Well, because they are going to take the brunt of all of these Assyrian invasions. Because they're in the north, and because every single invasion of Israel or Judah in all of its history comes from the north, they're gonna take the brunt of those invasions. Both of those tribal lands will be absolutely ravaged each time the Assyrians entered from the north. They are the first lands to be depopulated and deported by Tiglath-Pileser and all the kings who follow him. So essentially, through the ethnic cleansing program of Assyria, which they were known for, the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali became the first of what we call the 10 lost tribes of Israel. So that's the bad news. But let's look at the promise now that we have in this verse. Start with that word, but, or nevertheless. In spite of the contempt that had been shown to this far northern part of Israel in ancient times, Isaiah says later on in the future, in his wisdom and his mercy, the Lord will bring honor to this region and make it glorious. He's gonna turn it around. Now, why? How is he gonna do that? Well, it's very simple because that is the region where God's one and only son, the incarnate God, would spend most of his days on the earth. This is the part of Israel, by the way, not Jerusalem, not where all the highfalutin stuff's happening, but in Galilee, where he will minister and heal and feed and teach, where he will reveal the Father to all those who have eyes to see, where he will begin proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And we know that that's the meaning of this text in Isaiah 9-1, because again, Matthew applies it as such. This is from Matthew 4. Matthew 4. When Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the Isaiah the prophet. So the dots get connected here on these amazing Christmas prophecies. And again, what a remarkable and humbling thing that Jesus would choose this despised area, not Jerusalem, but this area of Galilee is the center of his ministry life. Remember how the Pharisees said, look, no prophet comes out of Galilee. And you remember how even the, the, some of the earliest apostles were like, could anything good come out of Nazareth? That was the feeling of that day. And because of the high concentration of Gentiles up there, its reputation for idolatry, because of all that, all the prideful Jews down in the South were like, They looked at Galilee with scorn and disgust, but Jesus thought differently. And isn't that the way of the Lord to reverse the common opinion of men and do what is so unexpected? Isaiah prophesying more than 700 years into the future provides this great hope for Galilee. Great hope. The land's not always gonna be held in contempt. Someday that gloom is gonna be lifted and this great light is going to shine from a very unexpected place. 700 plus years later, Jesus breaks into this Jewish world that's still under threat. Not the Assyrians anymore, but now the Roman Empire. And he will come out of this part of Israel, this contemptible land. And for what purpose? To seek and to save the lost. To destroy the work of the devil. To overcome sin and death. To reveal the face of the Father to us and to pay the ransom for our sin. Guys, that is, that is the Christmas story. Right here from Isaiah. Now that sets us up for the rest of the series. We, we have to better understand the context that these great prophecies were written. But before we're done today, let's talk about now, in a very practical sense, how knowing this, because I don't want this to be just a classroom setting, right, how does this help us really prepare for Christmas? our hearts and our minds. Well, I think it's important for us to see the hope in this prophecy. Hope is a big word at Christmas time, right? We should see the hope in this prophecy about the future glory of Galilee, spoken during a very difficult time for that part of the world. Consider this. This is something we don't often think about because, as they say, history's written by by the big shots, right? History's written by the victors and the kings and all this stuff. There were faithful Israelites living in Zebulun and Naphtali during the reign of King Ahaz. There were. We know that. In spite of all the idolatry and unbelief in that area, there were faithful Jews trying to eke out a life, a faithful life of worship, of Yahweh. And so, do you feel frustrated by your government today? (laughs) Imagine living through the wicked reign of King Ahaz. How scary and disheartening that would have been. And these faithful saints would have been caught up too in the suffering of the Assyrian invasions. They weren't spared that. Imagine what they went through. But they were never forsaken by Yahweh. We know that because God cares for his, his remnant. He always has. He's maintaining this remnant of faithful Jews. And he cares for them even in the darkest of times. And so they would have turned to God's word during those times. Imagine again, trying, you live in this land, uh, whether it's Dan or Nazareth or somewhere in between, you live in this land and there's all these things happening. Your king is out of control. You know he's an apostate. And now we're under threat from the Assyrians. What do you do as a faithful saint? Well, you turn to God's word and you turn to the prophecies of hope so that you can endure and persevere in your faith. You meditate upon God's promises. You look back at history and say, God's been faithful. He will love and care for me now. And oh, by the way, there's these prophecies of this Messiah to come. That's where I will put my hope. That's what they would have done in that day. And so today, if our circumstances appear gloomy and dark, and if you're starting to wonder about your country, and you're starting to worry about California, and about the state of this world... Never forget that there's always hope that God is going to move in ways beyond what you see and beyond what you can even imagine because he's sovereign. And that's the hope we have to have, friends. As we, as we seek to remain faithful worshipers, we've got to hold on to that hope. Listen, we cannot be the type of shallow, flaky followers who say, oh, I love Jesus when it's easy and when it's comfortable and when things are going well. And we feel prosperous. But then, when things get hard and they become uncomfortable, we quickly lose our joy and our hope. Sadly, I think that's in some cases the reputation of the church in America today that we we quickly lose our joy and hope and we, we become like the world when things get a little bit difficult. Can't do it. Remember that thick darkness precedes bright light, and great sorrow precedes great mercy. And joy, and when we put on the eyes of faith, we know that God is God is involved. We know that present trouble is not the end of the story for those who God calls according to His purposes. He's caring for us in the midst of all of it. By the way, this is what David declared in Psalm thirteen. David David is so blunt, right? We've seen this in our Psalm study. He says, "How long, O Lord?" Again, imagine you were living up in Zebulun or Naphtali. How long, O Lord? How long do we have to put up with this king? And all of his idolatry. How long? Will you forever? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? I talk to some of you guys, and you express some of those same feelings. How long do we have to live in this sorrow? Then what does David do after this, later in the psalm? He remembers who God is, doesn't he? And he says, But I've trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully or generously with me. This is, guys, this is what we need to do in these darker times. Choose to do what David did. Choose to stay rooted in the truth about God. Look back at his faithfulness in history so that we can find hope right now in the present we meditate on this. We remind ourselves and one another of our status as children of God and sojourners in this world, a people who long to be in our true home in heaven. And we encourage each other with those words. I have no doubt that that's what the faithful Israelites did in the 8th century BC under ha- Ahaz. They reminded one another that Yahweh had not forsaken them and that someday they would be home with him. And listen, listen, I know that things, uh, think the things that make life difficult and uncomfortable, are sometimes amplified at Christmas time. Right, uh, while l- half the world is celebrating, the other half is sort of you know struggling, feeling you know down because of a loss in their lives, or feeling lonely, or you know feeling fearful about an uncertain future. Some of us feel like this great pressure, the expectations of everybody at Christmas time. And the reality is, sometimes we don't feel like singing, Oh, come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant, because we're struggling. Sometimes we feel like we're on the opposite end of that, right? The opposite end of the spectrum. And by the way, this is why we often sing this song at Oak Hill. We sing, Oh, come, all you unfaithful, right? Come, weak and unstable. Come, know you're not alone. O come, barren and waiting ones, weary of praying, come. See what your God has done. O come, bitter and broken, come with fears unspoken. Come and taste of his perfect love. O come, guilty and hiding ones, there's no need to run. See what your God has done. Christ is born for you. That's the hope of Christmas. And that song ends, so come, though you have nothing. Come, because he is the offering. Come and see what your God has done. That's the hope of Christmas. So now's the time for us to start this process of getting our minds and our hearts ready to celebrate well, to reignite that hope of the Savior, right, who cares for us in the midst of this thing we call life. Remember, Jesus took on flesh. He understands life. He walked this life. He overcame this world so that we might live through him. And so if it looks gloomy out there and and if you're like, man, I feel like I live in Zebulun. I live in Naphtali. God is at work and he specializes in doing things that are unexpected. Doing beyond what we can think of, what we can conceive of. Going way above what we can even imagine. And, friends, he has given us every reason to hope and to trust in him and to believe this holiday season. This is just week one of five. Now we know the context. Now we know we got to start getting our hearts and minds prepared for this. But see the hope. The hope of Galilee is the hope of Santa Clarita. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Lord, uh, we thank you for every encouraging word that we read in this text today. Lord, we thank you that you are faithful. That You are the faithful God of history who has prophesied all these things because you are sovereign, because because you know all things. You know the beginning from the end and you see time all at once. And so you can prophesy things 700 years before they happen and then bring them to pass. God, may we remember that this holiday season for all those in our church family who are, who are not looking forward to Christmas, who are struggling for one reason or another. Lord, reignite our hope in you. Help us to trust you. Help us to look back and say, look, look at the unexpected things that God did. Look at how faithful he is. And then to turn and look at our own situation, to look into our own hearts and say, God, you are good. Lord, beginning today and over the next four weeks, will you stretch our faith to trust in you more and more, even if we're feeling gloomy? Raise our eyes, Lord. Help us to focus on things above this Christmas season. For your glory, we pray. Amen.